From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. Today on the show, we're doing something we've never done before and without fail. Instead of just me hosting the show, I'm going to be sharing the stage with another host, Jonathan Goldstein, the host of another Gimlet podcast called Heavyweight, in which Jonathan helps people revisit difficult moments from their past. Jonathan and I go way back. We both worked at This American Life well before Gimlet even existed. When we started Gimlet, he came over and developed Heavyweight here. But this was the first time we'd ever sat down to do a big, long interview with someone famous together. So before our guest arrived, I checked in with Jonathan to see how he was feeling. Hello. Hi. Hi. Sorry. I just having a bite of apple to kind of relax me. You know? Makes me sound more casual. How are you feeling? Um, good. How are you feeling? I'm a little antsy. I think this might be the only um, formal structured interview I've ever done in my life. That really? can't be. Yeah, I think so. You think it's a bad idea? It's not too late to take me out. The reason I would never do that, the reason I'm co-hosting today's show with Jonathan in the first place, is that he is a huge fan of today's guest, Nick Kroll, comedian, writer, and actor who's been in basically every funny show you've ever seen on TV, Parks and Recreation, The League, Community, Portlandia. Kroll Show. The list goes on and on. It's been in a bunch of movies as well. He's best known for playing these ridiculous over-the-top characters, and he has a ton of them. There's Bobby Bottle Service, a self-proclaimed jack-of-all-cards. In a manager of speaking, you could say that Bobby Bottle Service has had an amazing year directing, producing music, producing Gigolo, all of it. Liz G from the PR firm Publicity. There were so many amazing guests at the red carpet. That guy from Pennsylvania came. And Gil Faison, an elderly prankster from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. You know, Jeffrey, you're on a prank show, Too Much Tuna, where we're gonna deliver too much tuna fish to you. Nick's latest project is a lewd, zany cartoon called Big Mouth, which has garnered widespread critical acclaim. And at first glance, it seems like more of the same from Nick. It features a cast of ridiculous characters from a hormone monster to a clueless gym teacher. But the heart of the show is the story of two friends navigating puberty. And that part, it's a departure for Nick Kroll. Because it's his first TV show that isn't based on a caricature. It's based on his own story, his own childhood. Jonathan and I talked with Nick about the comedic evolution that he's gone through to get to Big Mouth. How he's gone from hiding behind these over-the-top personas to creating a show that puts him face-to-face with the deeply personal shame and regret he still carries around from his past. Before we get started, though, there's one more thing. I've given a lot of language warnings on the show before, but truly none have been more warranted than the language warning I'm about to give right now. There are lots of bad words and lots of talk about sex in this interview. In fact, the sex talk started pretty much the minute Nick Rill arrived in the studio. Hey. Hello. How are you? Uh, Jonathan's on the line, too. Hello. Hi. Hi, Nick Kroll. How are you? I'm great, Jonathan. I'm a <laughs> big fan of yours. Oh, come on. That's so nice. I I, um, I had an anxiety dream last night that I referred to you as a comedic genius, uh, <laughs> and you got upset. Yeah. Oh, my God. I had the, the worst wet dream I ever had. Let's just get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, is I couldn't figure out how to get my skis, like couldn't get my boots into my skis. <gasps> 
and then woke up and it was I was like 16, you know, I was and had come in my in my sleep. And the dream was like I think just it, putting your feet just into like ski trying boots? to get like getting my boots <laughs> into my skis and like couldn't quite get the ski equipment right and I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> it is the worst wet dream, but it was perfectly <laughs> symbolic of where I was feeling about like how sex, right. like it was like, I don't know how this works. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I can't do this well. Uh, and and then man. my friend a couple weeks later told me, he's like, I had a wet dream last night that I slayed a lion. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we are having, we are in different places in our sexual evolution. You know, I never, I've never had a wet dream in my whole life. And I'd read as a kid how it was like boys have a wet dream and girls get their period. So I felt like because I never had a wet dream, I, I wasn't becoming a man. So I remember lying to my mother about having a wet dream. Apropos of nothing, when I was about 13, I told her I had it at my friend Lenny's house. Um, and, 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 uh, but, yeah, I, just, I guess I, my fear was that I was just um, that I was masturbating too much to actually oh. have like anything left over for for wet dreams. Well, that is tr that is literally possible. Yeah, so I wanted my mother to know that um, <laughs> that, 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 thing, that everything was. You're, that wasn't you were the case. planning out. You're like, I think my mom knows. I'm not having wet dreams because I'm jerking <laughs> off too much. I'm going to head that off at the pass and let her know. That I had a wet dream, which means uh, she's wrong. I'm not masturbating too much over here. <laughs> well played, 13-year-old. Yeah, it's a real well chess played. match. <laughs> See, I wasn't kidding about how dirty it gets, right? Anyway, let's get back on track here. Nick Kroll grew up the youngest of four siblings, and Nick's father built his own business, Kroll Inc., which was a corporate investigations firm. It actually earned Nick's dad the nickname Wall Street's Private Eye from the New York Times. And over the years, Kroll Inc., it grew to be big, a large billion-dollar business, in fact. Talking shop about your life story for one second. Yeah. It presents a little bit of a problem with the beginning because you come from a wealthy family. Yes. And so normally you're sort of like already – like you're not in you're not in a sympathetic place. Correct. And so we had a long conversation about like how do we handle that? Yeah. Do we glide past it or do we just like uh -huh. dive into it? Uh-huh. I wanted to dive into it. Sure. How rich was your family? <laughs> <laughs> My family was rich, but not as rich as the internet claims it is. <laughs> Scrooge McDuck rich or Richie uh, Rich Rich? Yeah, like I'm yes, I've broken some vertebrae diving into gold coins. Did, um did you did you have a yacht? No. Did you have a boat? Uh, we had a boat or two, but a regular size, like, like 15 foot boat, never like a boat, boat, yacht boat, nothing like that. Right. So you were, you were the kind of rich family that like downplays how they're the size of their boat rather than plays up the size of their boat. Correct. Okay. Uh, did you know you were rich? Yes. Uh, yes. How? Um. Robot made. We have, uh. <laughs> Uh, we, uh, let's see, did I, did I, did we know we were wealthy? Uh, well, we had a very nice house. My parents got a, a, a really special piece of land. And mm -hmm. so that was the most clear and very clear evidence of our, of the money. Describe the house. What was it like? It's just on the water. So it's just got unbelievable you can see New York City. You can see Long Island. It's just a very beautiful 
picturesque place. And so that's that was the thing that I was both like proudest of and most insecure about is like having friends over and being like, and I still do it. I'll be like, so you're coming to my parents' house and you should just know that it's it's nice. You know what I mean? Like I <laughs> um and the and the and the money came from your dad's business, right? Yes. What kind of a presence was your was your dad? Was was he a big presence? Was he some was he the kind of presence that you felt compelled like, "Oh, I'm I'm going to f- forge my own path here?" Well, you know, I, I mean it wasn't like he was famous, like you would picture like someone being the son of like a, a, art, a writer or a musician or an actor, but he was always known in some capacity. Right. And like my friends' parents, like who were lawyers, knew about my dad or something like that, you know? And I think I was very conscious of wanting to go do my own thing and create my own path, um, yeah. So, like, what were you like as as a, as a teenager? I was, like, a little guy. I was really short. Um, throughout middle school and, and, and into high school, I started growing by the end of high school. I always thought of myself as funny. I think most people saw me as, like, sort of funny. Like, I don't think... <laughs> I don't think like my the people <laughs> my camp or in my elementary school who were watching me at talent shows were like this guy's gonna have his own TV show one day. Right, nobody was like I saw it back then. Yeah, he was I destined for what, this. What did you do uh, as a part of your act at, at a, uh, a junior high talent show? Uh, me and Andrew Goldberg, who I have cre- co-created Big Mouth with, alongside uh, Mark Levin and Jen Flackett. Uh, Andrew and I have known each other since first grade, and we became best friends in middle school. And um, he and I would do, like, uh, Wayne's World sketches. We would, like, host the Purim talent show as Wayne and Garth. Uh, (laughs) And we would sort of do the Mad Libs of, like, Wayne and Garth kind of jokes about Aurora, but instead of Aurora, it was about Solomon Schechter. (laughs) Um, So we were always doing kinds of things like that. Um, uh, yeah, I was also the pharaoh in the second grade production of Exodus from Egypt. <laughs> and I think it was just like, I got a lot of parts in, in elementary school because I just think I talked the loudest. When did you realize that this was even something that you wanted to do? Like, what? how, did, how early did you know, like, I want to be on stage? Well, I mean, I think in reality is when I got to college. College was Georgetown University. Nick was a freshman history major, and as you do as a freshman, he was trying new things. So he signed up for a university open mic called Funniest Act on Campus, where he caught the attention of an older classmate, a classmate who was also a budding comedian, Mike Berbiglia. I did a Funniest Act on Campus at at Georgetown where I met Mike Berbiglia and I bombed. Um, Do you you remember what what that looked like? Yeah, I, I... I was going to, my bit was I was going to get on stage and say, boy, I thought I was going to be so nervous, but I'm actually quite relaxed. And then I was going to piss my pants. Um, But I didn't believe, I didn't believe I could actually piss my pants on on cue. So my plan was to bring a, a water balloon and have it in my pocket and pop the water balloon 
But then I got so nervous that I, I got a little drunk and, and stoned before the show to sort of ease. And so then I got to the venue and I didn't bring a water balloon and a pin. And I was rummaging around in the garbage and found like a sandwich bag. And I filled it with filled urine. a sandwich bag with water with urine uh, and then took a pen and was trying to stab the sandwich bag on stage to look like I w- – but it just looked like I was masturbating on stage, <laughs> basically. So, uh, so I failed at what I was trying to do, and then I decided to explain to the audience what I had been trying to do. Sort of saying like, "Hey guys, here's what here's what the plan was." So, actually, what I love about that story is yeah. you bombed in a bunch of different ways. Like, you bombed in just sort of like just general. You just generally fucked up and forgot to bring the thing that yeah. you're supposed to bring to make the bit work. And then the bit didn't work, and 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 it was the sort of that bomb. And then it was like the bomb of like <laughs> trying, to trying to explain, explain it, way and out sell of it all out. Working. Yeah. So like it was a very it's a it's a it's, it's a, a multi tiered bomb. <laughs> it's a multi tiered bomb. It was like um, you were going to inoculate yourself from rejection by almost like building that into your routine. Yeah. Yes, and it was. Go- I yeah. thought I was going to be nervous, but I'm actually relaxed and piss my pants, which is sort of undermining my own fear and trying to f- create the joke inside of what my perceived fear of the situation would be. Uh, but Mike saw me bomb and was like, boy, he's bombing in an interesting way. That's the highest form of comedy. I think, well, and I think that's what, and I honestly think that my gut is that's what caught Mike's attention. And so I was, I got cast in the improv group by Mike Birbiglia, mm-hmm. uh, a sketch show freshman year, and then and then the improv show group the next year. And I, rem- I have a very clear memory of going to do a lot a table read of a bunch of sketches where I was like got to do voices and play choose a play a character and play a part you know because until that point I had done like a few plays in middle school and high school but it was right. like Oklahoma right um it, and so all of a sudden that I was reading like modern current sketches and being able to make big character choices like where I was like oh I feel very this is very fun and I feel like an ease in this space mm-hmm. and I walked out being like oh this is what I want to do for the rest of my life like I just had this feeling of like oh this is the th-, like everything else until then growing up a kid with you know like uh with wealth and privilege um you have it affords you to not be terribly like ambitious um in a lot of ways and and somewhat passionless because you just are sort of like everything will be fine mm-hmm. you know and um and 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 then i found comedy and it was like oh i'll do anything and everything i need to do for this like this i will do anything coming up we talked to nick kroll about his rise through the ranks of the comedy world which for him involved inventing a bunch of crazy characters a few of whom jonathan and i actually get to interview that's after the break Welcome back to Without Fail and our conversation with comedian Nick Kroll. After falling in love with improv in college, Nick moved to New York City with a bunch of his improv friends, like Mike Birbiglia and another Georgetown alum, John Mulaney. And they all tried to make it in the comedy scene. And like any aspiring stand-up and improv comic, Nick still bombed many sets. But on the side, he started doing something that made him think, maybe I can make this comedy thing work after all. He started writing skits with his friends from college. 
me and like my improv group from college, those the the guys that I worked with started selling the first versions of like web shows to Comedy Central called like I Love the Thirties. Uh, it was a parody of I Love the 80s, and it was people in the 40s talking nostalgically about the 30s of, like, the Hindenburg disaster and the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. And um, me and John Mulaney, before that, did a newsreel about, San, like, a, a San Simeon newsreel, like, cavalcade of personalities. There's Chuckles Fine. Toast of vaudeville. Watch out, ladies. He'll verbally abuse you. <laughs> The, uh, there's Jojo Bryson, heir to the Bryson clam sauce fortune. How about a kiss? Delightful. <laughs> Room in the pool for one more, ladies? Doesn't matter to Teddy Maxwell. He wouldn't doff his shirt for all the sand in Cairo. Oh, my God. It's so... <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of that. It was just this weird. It sort of is what I've, I guess, have done a lot of, which is take a take a something that's you know some sort of genre thing and 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 speak to the subtext of that thing in a way that um, it's presented as one thing, and then and then you try to present some underlying subtext to what's really going on in those people's lives. But yes, but it's also like, like I. You watch it and you're like, this kid's got something. There's something, There's something there, weird yeah. and funny and like unusual here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so Nick plugged away. He showed up at auditions, did stand-up gigs, went on comedy podcasts, and continued to do his own projects on the side. And always at the heart of what he was doing were the extreme and extremely funny characters he invented along the way. And those characters, that's what eventually got him noticed. In 2011, Nick landed a supporting role on the hit sitcom Parks and Recreation, a show about the Parks and Rec Department in a small town in Indiana. Nick played a character called The Douche, a shock jock radio DJ who relies on crude jokes and crude sound effects on the soundboard. We thought it would be interesting if we could just interview some of your characters. Sure. So maybe, and uh, we, we sort of came, came up with some of our favorites. Um, so... First, uh, we thought we'd start with the douche. Which douche? I've played a number of douches. Uh, the radio DJ from Parks and Rec. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, the douche. All right, I'm here with Alex <laughs> Bloomberg. Uh, Goldstein's on the phone. Uh-oh. <laughs> what do you got, boys? What do you got? Um, do you think uh, the podcast without fail could benefit by more sound effects, more toilet flushing? Oh, all right. Well, you know, uh, looking back on, uh, I mean, let's just say I don't believe in podcasts, okay? <laughs> it's terrestrial radio, the future, the current, and the past. Don't think I need a podcast. Uh, some guy in his uh, garage uh, typing away at his computer. Uh, excuse me, sir. Uh, can you tell me? Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you think my podcast would benefit from more sound effects? Of course it's going to benefit <laughs> from sound effects. We got uh, uh, we got uh, Rob on the ones and twos over there, uh, ready to go with a couple. At this point, just to give you a full visual of what's happening here in the studio, my producer Rob, who is in the studio with us, started frantically Googling sound effects websites on his laptop computer. Uh, douche, I got to ask you. So, um, tell me about a memory from your childhood. <laughs> okay, uh, first time I saw a big pair of boobs, I. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was on a, a duck trip with my dad. We were hunting ducks, and then uh, this duck came out with the bikini on, and I said, uh-oh, 
Looks like dinner is served. <laughs> You're right. It is better. Yeah. It is. Uh, it, it really is. Uh, douche, um, what's your biggest failure? Uh, my biggest failure is doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your biggest success? Uh, doing a podcast. <laughs> Trying to get a podcast over <laughs> In 2013, Nick landed his own show, Kroll Show, on Comedy Central. Kroll Show is a sketch comedy show that recreates the experience of channel surfing, skipping around to different parodies of bad cable TV. The premise was a perfect vehicle for Nick to unleash a slew of ridiculous roles, from a pawn shop broker to a pet plastic surgeon to the stars. My co-host, Jonathan Goldstein, is from Canada, and so he specifically requested that we interview one character in particular, Mikey from a Kroll show parody called Wheels Ontario, which was a send-up of the classic Canadian teen show Degrassi. It really just became a vehicle for us to do, like, one million Canada jokes. <laughs> um, but how, they're so, they're so specific, and, yeah. and so, it's, mm-hmm. it's just so pitch perfect. Oh, oh, thank you. We do drink bags of milk. Yeah, they do drink Canadians, <laughs> drink a bag of milk. Um, but why don't we talk to Mikey and yeah. we'll see what we find. So, well, so what, what would you like me to be Brian Lacroix, who's the actor who plays Mikey? Yeah, I think I'll be oh, Brian Lacroix. Yeah, that's so meta. So you'll be talking to Brian Lacroix. Um, Brian, what what kind of research did you have to do uh, for your role as Mikey? Did you spend a lot of time in Canada? Um, well, uh, pardon for um, I'm sorry to correct you, but um, I was in Canada. Uh, already right. doing the research um, because that's where I'm from. But, um, well, I've been li- living in Canada um, not, ag- not against my will, uh, but instead in, been in the process of being a resident of Canada for many years. And so for that, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to the Queen. <laughs> Uh, Brian, um, mm-hmm. what's your um, what's your biggest failure? To be honest, my biggest failure is as a friend. Um, <laughs> I don't. I think I've. I remember a friend of mine uh, asked me to come over one night, and I couldn't do it, and I I felt like I failed him as a friend, hmm. and um, you know I've sent him a number of stories and a. A number of pardons, but he, I don't think he ever quite forgave me. Alex, you must have some follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> and then, in 2017, Nick launched Big Mouth, an animated series which would go on to become his most critically acclaimed show, and in which his ability to create iconic and memorable characters was on full display. Nick voices a character based on his own adolescent self, but he also voices more than 20 other characters— including the hormone monster and a character named Coach Steve. Coach Steve is the gym teacher on Big Mouth and um, I think possibly one of the dumbest characters to ever exist. <laughs> uh, so uh, tell, 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 us, uh, tell us a little bit okay. about your childhood. Oh, my childhood was great. Oh, my God. I had the best childhood, you know? Uh, my mom... You know, my dad was gone a lot, and my mom had this guy named Gary, and he would come over and do push-ups on my mom 
when my dad was gone. And uh, what else about me? You did know, you, did you have friends? Oh, sure. Yeah, I had a bucket in my room that I would, you know, <laughs> that I could do whatever I wanted with. And he was cool. Wait. A, bu- a bucket? <laughs> a bucket. You know, yeah, I could put all my, my stuff in it and my feelings, and the bucket <laughs> could take it. <laughs> and we were, so we were great friends. I'm, I'm sorry, Coach Steve. I was asking, I asked you about, um, about, about your, uh, your friends. About my friends? Yeah. Yeah, it was my friend, the bucket. And then, uh, who else? And then I had a broom, and I could put the broom, if I turned the broom upside down, it was like a lady from a band, and she would play music for me. And we were close. <laughs> so it was cool. It was a pretty cool childhood overall. Yeah, it was pretty fun. <laughs> um, what what's what would you call your biggest uh, biggest failure? Sure, my biggest failure, man. You know, my biggest failure. You know, I would say that my greatest weakness is that I have no strengths. <laughs> That was wonderful. How do you do that? What? What you just did. What I did. Uh, well, he's the freshest of all three of those characters. I feel like, to be f- honest with you, I feel like I gave you guys B minuses, two B minuses and a B, to be frank, uh, in my character uh, improvisational abilities inside of that. Uh, because I don't, I felt like I wasn't fully dropped in. Uh, there are times where I can drop in uh-huh. where I am like, you feel like you're channeling it. Yeah. Do you, you know what I'm saying? It's like that. It's the closest, like I can get to a flow state where I'm like, oh, I am, I have access to this whole person's life right now. And what does it feel like to drop in? What does that mean? It just means there's no filter. There's no moment where I have to come up with something like, like we were, we were doing a panel up in, in Montreal actually. And I was doing coach Steve for a second. And like, I had a moment where I go as coach Steve, I was like, you know, but at the end of the day, it's night. (laughs) Uh, and like, like it, it, uh, you know, it's like, that's the, some version of the flow state of like, Oh, I think I can, if I, I can start a sentence and I think by the end of it, I will have come up with something uh, funny. And and you didn't, you started that sentence not knowing how it was going to end. Correct. In other words, it's as, it's am, almost as funny to you as it is to everybody else because it's almost like you're hearing it in yes, real time the way it is. It's like, I, I'm like, if I can start a sentence as with a, with something that feels rote, like, at, you know, at the end of the day, I'm doing the math while I'm saying at the end of the day that by the time I finish that sentence, I will find what the the proper like mathematical solve is for it. And I can do it like, you know, in real time at times. That's what feels like when you're in the flow. When I when I feel like I'm sort of flowing in in inside of the characters. So what what was it about like doing the characters all the all those years that was attractive to you? Um, well, there's a safety in hiding behind the character. There's a safety in, like, um, not exposing myself. There's a safety in, um, in, in being able to boil someone else down 
to an archetype or or whatever to build someone else's world is a, is feels safer and easier than trying to disseminate what like my world experiences or what my point of view on an issue is like if i see a car crash i can tell you what coach steve is going to think or what the hormone monster is going to think uh it's much more complicated for me to tell you what i'm what i think about seeing that car crash why um because i think our points of view or at least my point of view is 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 it's just more complicated hmm. because I see a car crash. I know it's a weird example, but let's just use it because mm -hmm. I'm trying it. I'm immediately like, um, oh, man, like, who is in that car? What Do they have a family? Do they have insurance? Like, what is going on with our healthcare system? Um, what's going to happen to traffic right now? Am I going to be able to get into the city in time for my appointment tonight? What if my parents were in a car crash? What if my sister was in a car crash um like i don't oh that car has a ton of scrapes on it that person's a bad driver like da, 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 like I, i'm 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 having f in my mind 40 thoughts to run through my head if the hormone monster sees a car crash he's he he's like oh have you seen that scene in that movie where the guy fucks the car crash wounded person <laughs> <laughs> it's it's simpler. It's it's your consciousness is constantly fragmented. Exactly. And then you it it must there must be just something kind of um not comforting but but just kind of simple. It's a simpler it's simpler to to present someone else's point of view. Wait, it's not that you're presenting someone it's not just presenting someone else's point of view. It's like someone it's like a very specific it's a it's a caricature's point of view. It's like exactly. it's like a it's a person who takes like just one aspect of the multitude things of things yes. that you're feeling and and that's all they feel. Yes. It's simpler. Even though then the more that I get inside of those characters, the more that you can start to build these backstories and you realize how complicated and nuanced their lives are and all of that stuff can play into that. But even then, you are cherry-picking a very clear, definable example of what their reaction is. Coming up, Nick learns to start sharing more of his own backstory thanks to a therapy-to-writer's-room feedback loop. We'll explain what that is after the break. Welcome back to Without Fail and our conversation with Nick Kroll. For many years, Nick had built his career playing characters. So when he created the cartoon show Big Mouth with his childhood friend Andrew Goldberg, the animation gave him license to fill the cast with even more outlandish characters. In addition to Coach Steve, there's the Hormone Monster, who you briefly met before the break. You ever actually fuck a tomato? It's like fucking a sneeze. Wait, you find a sneeze sexual? Oh, I find everything sexual. What about a... The Hormone Monstress? Why do you smell so good? Because I don't use deodorant and I only take bubble baths. And the ghost of Duke Ellington, who lives in Cartoon Nick's attic. Jazz is like life. It goes on for longer than you think. And then as soon as you're like, oh, I get it. It ends. Oh. <laughs> These characters all play supporting roles to a group of adolescent teenagers as they navigate the onset of puberty. Big Mouth focuses in particular on the friendship of Nick and Andrew. And it's based in part on the real friendship that Andrew and Nick had as kids. Andrew hit puberty earlier than Nick did, which was hard on their friendship, hard on Nick. And the process of using his own life as comedic material, instead of pee bags, air horns, and Canadian references, it's been new for real-life Nick. 
you know, we started doing Big Mouth, which was really my story about what it was like for me to grow up and be a 13-year-old boy who hadn't hit puberty and who was dealing with what the ramifications of that were for him and really what the ramifications are for me as a man now, a 41-year-old man who is still dealing with some of the, many of the elements of what who I was as a 13-year-old boy. Like, I think puberty is such a formative time for people that it it has effects on us in ways that we can't even quite, quite fathom on a day-to-day basis. But... Oh, yeah. So, so, and in, so I would go to therapy and then I would go to my room. Go to your room, your writer's room. My, sorry, my writer's room. I'd go to my writer's room and then I would go to therapy and I would realized that I was, they were informing one another. What, you said the experiences from like puberty really continue to affect you even well into adulthood, which I think is completely true. Um, I guess in this process of like making the show and therapy, the, the therapy show feedback, yeah, what have well, you learned from about yourself? I think like, I think it's partly like um, being a little guy. Um, like, being like 13 and and not having hit puberty and looking around like being a camp and being in the showers and like looking to see who had like a adult penis or look who had like pubes or look who's like nipples were swollen or eyebrows had grown in or you know the things that like I had known were secondary sex characteristics mm-hmm. and just like a lot of compare and despair uh, a lot of sort of like trying to gauge where other people were and and then gauging myself based on that and seeing if that w- if, whether I stacked up or not. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what advice would you give your 13 year old self? And I and it's like I would like tell him, like, you're cute, like you're, you know, like you're a good kid, you know, like and I knew I was a good kid. Like, I mean, I knew I was. It wasn't like I had low self-esteem, but I did, and I do. You know, like, we all kind of, like, nobody hates nobody hates you as much as you do. And, like, I, I don't know, at least that's how I feel. Like, in doing this show of, of exploring who I was and who I am, um, it's like to just try to be a little kinder to myself. Um, which is such a long, it's like a lifelong, and then look, there are certain people who are like way too kind to themselves, but I think there's a, a broad swath of us who are not so kind to ourselves. What, what were you not being kind to yourself about? Um, about like what I looked like and what I, and, and how like, like the, th- like, like looking around and it's, it's none of it makes any sense. Like I am a incredibly successful comedian and writer and actor. And I know that I have succeeded beyond what my highest expectations of what I would have hoped I could have succeeded at. I have done that and I've surpassed that. And yet I can watch Jason Manzoukas improvise or watch John Mulaney do stand-up or see Jenny Slate do a character and be like, I'm fucking garbage. 
you know, like I'm terrible. Look at them. Like that is success. That is talent. The only reason I get to do this is because I put the show together myself. That's how I get to do these things. You know, like I'm not as talented, which is just an extension of me being like, Andrew has pubic hair and a big dick and muscles. And I'm like this little boy who's sitting here, you know, with, you know, who's got like a little, little bald, little cashew. It's all extensions of the same stuff. Yeah. I, I think. Mm-hmm. Was it was there anything in the process of of doing Big Mouth where you admitted something about your past or your present that you had never told anybody? Um. Yeah, you know, like there's an episode in season two where Nick, a girl, it's in early episode. This girl Gina voiced by Gina Rodriguez is a girl who's been at the school for a number of years and she grows boobs all of a sudden. And it was like a kind of a typical middle school story where it's like all of a sudden some girl grows boobs and like everyone's like eyes are on her like, whoa, who's she? Who's the new girl? It's like, she's not new. She just grew breasts. Please do not bring up science. That class is killing me. Maybe I can help. I don't want to brag, but I am getting a low B, so. Ugh, I'm like a full C. Mm-hmm. Oh. Nick is so yeah. lucky. I can't believe he can just walk up to those boobs and then say things. Just spitball, but maybe we should study together. Tomorrow after school? And study? I, I remember, like, making out with or fooling around with some girl who was a year ahead of me who had big boobs. You know, when I was that age, I was so little and I wanted to, like, date the girl with the biggest boobs to show everyone that I could get the girl with the biggest boobs to show mm-hmm. that I was, even though I was a little guy, I was like, a, I was a man, you know? Um, and then I, like, bragged about it. And it was fine. Like, she didn't, she wasn't, like, lambasted for it. But, like, but that feeling of being, like, honest about being, like, I did that so that I could tell everyone that I did that. Um, is something that, like, uh, I probably had not ever kind of been very f- open or about or being like... You never fully kind of clean. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Huh. It's it's a surprisingly difficult thing to do. I, I find, like, with a lot of the stories that I do where, let's say, like, you know, I, I go with someone who's been bullied by a group of kids mm-hmm. and, you know, it's like 30 years later and we go to get the other kids to talk about um, what went down at that time. And there's an incredible allegiance that people feel to their past selves. Uh-huh. Um, or it, or it doesn't even feel like the past. It feels incredibly close. Like we'll, you know, talk to one of these bullies and, or, and, and they'll just, they won't want to go on the record, you know, like a, it's, it's kind of a even phenomenon. Like 30 years ago. Even though it's like 30 years ago. Yeah. They just feel a lot of embarrassment about it and, yeah. and shame, I guess. And, um, and yeah. <sighs> Yeah, it's a lot. That makes perfect sense. And I think it's like, you know, look, I've I've been rewarded for being vulnerable about who I was as a 13-year-old, both having a show and financially. So I can understand. It's easy for me to do that because I'm being rewarded for it. Like, for the bullies you're talking about, like, 
I could see them being like, what's in this for me? Mm. <laughs> what's the upside yeah, here? There's a lot of that. Yeah, that's true. And I think, but yeah. what I think they don't realize is that there's catharsis in it. There's catharsis in coming clean about who you were. Um, you know, season two of Big Mouth focused a lot on this character, the shame wizard. That was really more Andrew Goldberg who who really came up with, and he said, I want to do a shame monster. And I said, maybe it's not a shame monster, it's a shame wizard, because like there's something haunting and and slightly uh, magical and, and evocative about a wizard more than a monster. A monster has no... Has no um, Monsters like also yeah it's like endearing it's like you know like Oscar or, or like Grover from Sesame Street is a monster too but the wizard is like more is like more powerful somehow exactly and darker and yeah. I think that's what shame was and is for so much of us um, that it's a really um, seductive kind of emotional state um, and. Uh, and I think so much of shame is built from that starts at that age as you're as you're getting sexual desires and what is turning you on or how it's turning you on or who's turning you on or and how your parents react to that, how culture reacts to that, how your friends react to that. Um, and there's all these things you're not allowed to talk about. Like, yeah. Like we opened this up like talking about wet dreams and I'm like, do we have to cut that from the podcast? Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like. Maybe, maybe you do. Maybe you don't. It's, it's <laughs> you listeners. You will. You'll know. <laughs> you'll. You'll find out. But, but like, if it got cut, folks, we started talking about wet dreams. <laughs> but it's, and and for me, it's like, you know that that's a clearly a tool for me that I have from doing the show where I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to talk to them immediately about my weird wet dreams because it's it it tells you like I'm here to be open with you. I'm here to like share with you. Mm -hmm. And if I do that with you, then there's some sort of contract that I can tell whether you're going to do that back with me and we can have a real conversation. Mm -hmm. That's um, why I talked about masturbating. I don't really masturbate. <laughs> <laughs> it was an interview. It was technique. just to break the shame spell. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> it's, and it's, but it's, those are real things. And like, I found it. I've I've found it to be challenging at times and scary to be uh, continue to be revelatory about myself. But I have I have reaped the rewards of it. Um, in that, I think people have been drawn to the show in a way because it speaks to my experience, but it really speaks to everyone's experience, the universality of right. the, the feelings of, of alienation, of fear, of lust, of shame, of anxiety, of all those things that you feel so deeply at, in adolescence and then you carry with you for the rest of your life. And, and hopefully in sharing that stuff, there's, there's something universal about it of what it's like to, you know, be broken up with or whatever those things are that we're all going through. The third season of Big Mouth is out now on Netflix. Nick is also touring with a new stand-up routine called Middle-Aged Boy. He says he's trying out some new material that's a bit more revelatory and vulnerable. This episode of That Fail is hosted by me, Alex Bloomberg. And me, Jonathan Goldstein. It's produced by Molly Messick, Rob Zipko, and Hiba Elarbani. It's edited by Alex and Devin Taylor. Mixing by Keegan Zema. And music by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, Without Me, because I'm never going to be on it again, 
please follow the show. If you want to check out Heavyweight, you can also follow us, too. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>